Hi, everybody. This is Mike Reno from Loverboy, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. to be this is small town music this is big town music he's ahead of his time you know but he can't use it if only he could prove it well tomorrow's just a song away a song away a song away hey everybody welcome to rock solid the comedy podcast for all things music both new and classic i'm pat francis and joining me today i'm very excited uh, for you guys to hear this gentleman. He might not remember, but I met him before in person. I'm going to tell him about that. You've heard him on the radio since the, the early 80s, since 80. Ladies and gentlemen, the lead singer of Loverboy, coming from Canada, Mr. Mike Reno. Hello, Mike. Hello, Pat. How are you? Hey, listen, was that you recording that intro song? That sounds great. The intro. Are you, are you a closet musician? Are you like a? I am not a musician. I'm just a music fan since since an early age. But no, the theme song of the show is by a band called Hockey. Oh, I like the and hockey. Perfect for Canada. Hockey, perfect for Canada. The song is actually called "Song Away." We've yeah. been using it for almost 500 episodes. I've tried to contact the band many, many times to get their permission. No right. one gets back to me. No one. So the only the only thing I can hope is that people hear that song, seek it out, and are buying it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I I want I want it to be legit. I want to have permission. But sure. you know, I tried. I and I've tried all the time. But I think the I think they might be d- disbanded. They might not even be a band anymore. But you know, I do what I can do. I hear you. I love the song. I just wanted. I thought maybe you would. No, you I wish. The real question. Do you want to hear a real coincidence? Yes. My mother's name is Pat, and my grandmother's name is Francis. <laughs> well, Francis is actually my middle name. It's my uh, I've I've my uh, my background is stand up comedy, and that was my I, I use that as my stage name. My last name is Dodson, but uh, that is a coincidence. Right. I, I would like to well, tell you, you know that what? we had an engineer named Mark Dobson. <laughs> <laughs> What's weird is my grandmother's name is Mike, and my mother's name is Reno. Get out. What a coincidence that is. <laughs> We're like blood brothers, my friend. Now, Reno, though, Reno is a stage name, too, right? Well, listen, I got to tell you, I can barely spell. If I go back and get this catalog that I have right here, you can check this out. This will be fun. Ah, this my father gave me. And in it, it's a mutual life of Canada. In it are passports from all my relatives. Oh, my God. My father was born in Germany. And the last name in here you can't even pronounce, but I'll give you an idea what it sounded like when they came to, from Poland. It was Renoskiewicz. Renoskiewicz. Boy, I can barely say it. Renoskiewicz. And it's very Polish. And apparently Renoskiewicz was shortened from something I can't even pronounce. Mm-hmm. And then they shortened it to Renoski in Halifax. Like people came from Europe. They either came... They landed either Halifax or they landed in Ellis Island. So in my parents, or I guess, were, or grandparents were in the uh, the Canada line, I guess. So they landed in Halifax. As they as soon as they got to the country, they just shortened it immediately. Like they, wow. they took the, the Vich off, so it was Renoski. And I took the ski off, so it's Reno. It's just Reno. Now, did you change your name to Reno? Is that actually on your driver's yeah, license? I, yeah, yeah, I did that years ago. 
And you, uh, are you, you're married? Cause I, I, I've seen you perform and your wife came out and sang with you. So I know you're married. Yeah. yeah married, happily married 15 years now, feeling good. It's uh, been, uh, you know, it's been a long haul finding the right gal, but you know, I finally did. Any kids along the way? I got a 32 year old boy who's off to Paris in three weeks oh boy. Uh, to start an adventure. He's going to buy a rail pass and go through, go through Europe. He's been working hard most of his life, and now he wants to have a little fun. He wants to have a little fun. And any grandkids? Uh, not yet. All right. Well. That I know of, Pat. <laughs> of course. Of. of course. <laughs> well, uh, Mike, first of all, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I've been a fan of the, of the band since the beginning. I saw you early on. I think I saw you on the Get Lucky tour at the Johnstown War Memorial and uh, Huey Lewis in the News were the opening band, so that was a terrific double bill. Oh, man, I got a great Huey Lewis story, man. You tell me when you're ready. Yeah, well, we, we just brought him up, so you might as well drop it in right now. Well, we had Huey Lewis in the News on tour with us, I think, for three tours. We loved those guys. Great guys. And I remember the last tour, we finished the show somewhere, and I wanted to go say goodbye to Huey and the guys. And I went into their dressing room, and Huey was sitting there by himself. And he looked pretty glum and everything. And I said, what's going on? He goes, Reno, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I said, I'm thinking of getting out of the business. And I go, what are you talking about? He said, you guys are great. He goes, no matter what we do, we can't sell a record to save our lives. And I went, come on, Huey. And like six months later, they recorded sports, <laughs> you know, which went on to sell 20 some odd million records. So you never know in this business. Yeah. Pat. And plus... Huey Lewis in the news, they're, they're not your typical um, matinee idol looking dudes. And yet they had great success with their videos on MTV. So, Absolutely. Well, they, they kind of started getting into doing all uh, like the cool movies like Back to the Future. That's true. Something. That's true. So and, uh, and, and he you're, was even in that movie, if you remember. Yes, he was. Uh, he was a school teacher, principal or something. Yeah. Yeah. He, puts, he was judging the music contest. Yeah, they put some glasses on him and give him a comb over. But everyone knows exactly. everyone knows who it is. You know what? I think they started same with us, Pat. We came up with three. Uh, we didn't even know they were called videos back then. They just said we'd like you to record some uh, some. Uh, uh, we're going to bring a camera in into this place, the Shrine Auditorium or something in like uh, in New York. And uh, we went okay. And then they said, just stand up there and sing a bunch of your songs and change outfits <laughs> every once in a while. It was, it was really new, right? Yeah. It was just 1980, early 1980 kind of thing. And so they, we did that, and we sang some songs, and they had they shot, you know, pictures of us and stuff. And and then later they just edited it all up, put this weird, wacky black and white stuff in for the first video, and then. They, re they sent three videos to uh, a new company called MTV. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, come on. What, what are the chances that we lucked out with that one? So we, we sent them three videos the first week they were open, and I think Huey Lewis was right behind us on that, on that scheme. Well, I'm sure that's where I first uh, saw you guys uh, and heard you guys was probably with Turn Me Loose on MTV.
I'm the guy smoking a cigarette at the beginning <laughs> of the Turn Me Loose scene. You know, the camera comes between the guy and the girl. Yeah. And then it goes down from the balcony down to the stage. Uh-huh. Well, I'm the guy looking at the girl, and my fingers are trembling because I don't really smoke. I'm kind of doing this. And he says, keep smoking. He keeps smoking. And I'm going like this. You know, it's like, I'm not So ridiculous. So ridiculous. There's some of those yeah, videos. But it was fun stuff. And it is, you know what? A lot of the early uh, MTV stuff is ridiculous. Yes. It's ridiculously, and it's, it's kind of fun. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter who the artist is. Everyone has a video that they're, they're, that they hopefully laugh about. Because right. it, I mean, you we look bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, let me let me. Uh, first of all, let's give a shout out to all the band members. And there's a there's a, a two guys here. I don't know how to say their names, but let's let's just give a shout out. Paul Dean on guitar, Doug yeah. Johnson on keyboards, Matt. How do you say his last name? Frenette. Frenette. I didn't know if it was Frenet. I wasn't. Uh, you know. And then yeah, you could see, yeah, it could be silent T's. It could that's be true. Frenetti. And then this one. Yeah. He could be Joey Frenetti, Frenetti. <laughs> like, you know, like like Bobby two times, two times. Now, Matt, before, Matt has the craziest drum face of all time. He's very frenetic. He's a perfect name for him. He really gets into it uh, <laughs> with, with, the, with the drumming and the face. But yes. uh, I love that guy. I um, I was getting off. Uh, I was getting off a, a shuttle in uh, at LAX, and he was getting on the shuttle. And he had a baseball cap on. I don't even know who he was with. He was seemed to be by himself. And I, I like yelled at him. I'm like, Matt. And he looked scared to death. And I just gave him a thumbs up. I'm like, big fan. And he was like, oh, okay. Because I think he was like shocked that he was even um, recognized. But uh, Yeah, he lived up there for a while. So he flew out of LAX a lot. Yeah, there you go. And, and then, you know what? A great drummer made the faces. Every time he hit the drums, it was... <laughs> <laughs> Symbols. Yep. I mean, it was classic. I, I loved it. Um, and, then, and he's a great drummer. And he's still a great drummer. And yeah, the whole band is still great. And then we got and then on bass is Ken. And how do we say Ken's last name? You know, Pat, I'd like you to give it a try. Give Just give it a try. I'd just like to hear what you have to say. Oh, my God. People that listen to this podcast know how much difficulty I have with last names. So right now they're laughing that you're making me do this. But I'm going to say Ken. Sinavi? Wow, that's the closest. I used to. I did not pronounce it for many years. It's actually Ken Sinave. Sinave. Okay. There's he's um. Belgian. He's and, a Belgian guy. And he's uh, his nickname is Spider. So he, I just assume call him Spider. Yeah, spiders. That's what we all call him. He's got the spider fingers, you know. So you guys, um, and again, I, I got. I was going to talk about this later, but we're talking about the band members. Scott Smith, obviously, the original bass player who. It passed away 20 years. It'll be 20 years this year. I mean, I, I don't know even what to say. It, it was, it was, it was a, a tragic accident that took his life. It's a total tragic accident. And you know, when we bring it, when we bring it up, I actually go right back to the day. Mm -hmm. It was the hard, the hardest thing I had to deal with in my life up to then. Uh, wow. Jeez. You know, he, he got hauled off the back of that sailboat, leaving the, San Francisco Harbor, and he went right to the bottom. This is what this Coast Guard told us. Mm -hmm. The thing he was strapped to was the steering wheel with the compass on it on a nice big sailboat. He was strapped to that. Yeah. For some reason, it, the boat had listed over so many times because of uh, traffic from from all of the uh, you know traffic on the water. 
<clears throat> that just the whole thing snapped off in the steering wheel and everything and barely dragged him right off the back. And, you know, at least it was fast. But I looked for that guy for a week until the Coast Guard sat me down and told me, you know, he's my best. He was my best friend. Yeah. I, I truly miss him. He's the godfather of my son. I'm the godfather of his kids. It's just, I had to come home and tell his kids it was just terrible. Yeah. Well, I'm see when I when I read anything, it just says it just says lost at sea. So I mean, I I wasn't expecting to get such detail from you, but and I wasn't expecting to put you on the spot either. I normally start the interview um, before we start recording, and I ask if there's anything that the artist doesn't want to talk about, and I, I failed to ask you that because we just started talking like old buddies, you know, but I appreciate Scotty that. Was, no, Scotty was a great member of this band. He was with us for 20 years. He was a founding member, mm -hmm. uh, wonderful guy, and he's worth talking about. He was fabulous, yeah. and it was a tragic loss, and it's really horrible. I, I, I'm sorry if I freaked everybody out. You, didn't freak, you yeah. didn't freak us out at all. I, I, I thank you for your honesty, and I was just, uh, what I was going to add is, uh, had, had he, if he was still with us, I know he would be with the band, because you guys are, you guys are solid. Yeah, we're pretty tight. So, even the new guy's been in the band. Even the new guy's been in the band twenty years. You know what I mean? I know. And yeah. So here's the time we met. You guys played the Canyon Club in uh, in Agora Hills. Oh yeah, and, it's a fun place to play. And your uh, your management's always been very nice to me and very nice to the podcast. So they they uh, they got me some tickets and they 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 said, uh, oh, you, we're going to get you to meet the band. They take me up to the green room uh, after the show. I'd already talked to to Doug and Paul and you guys. It's it's really is it a Canadian thing? You guys were so nice. Yeah. It wasn't just like <laughs> it was like real conversation. You know what I mean? And uh, I was trying not to fanboy out too much, but I get up to the green room and I walk over to say hi to you. And we're talking. And you ask me. You said, "Did you come to the show by yourself?" And I said, "No, I came with my friend, who's actually also named Mike." And you said, "Where is he?" I said, well, he's downstairs. He didn't. He doesn't have a, a a pass, so they wouldn't let him come up. And you said, well, would he like to come up and have a have a beer? And I said, yeah, he would. You took your pass off your neck, gave it to me. You said, go down, have him put this on, and he can walk right up. And that was, I gotta, you know, that was pretty cool, Mike. That was really that was really nice. So I thank you in person. You know what it is? It's not so much a, well, maybe it is a Canadian thing. I don't know. But to be honest with you, we've been out there doing this since we were young. And we actually think it's pretty great that people want to talk to us and people want to meet us and people come and watch us. And we're, we're going to treat it like, you know, we're, we're very lucky to be in this position. I mean, there's a lot of jobs in, in the world that are probably really crummy. <laughs> right. Being a singer in a rock band is not a crummy no, job. No, it's not a I'm crummy job. And I'm happy to do it. And I'm happy to talk. Yeah, I tell people a lot of times, you know, when the, like sometimes people kind of shy away from when the people when they meet you at the airport and stuff. So I kind of pull one of the guys is a little shy. So I say to him, you know, you can't be famous and not famous at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, like get get with the program you know it'd be nice to people you know they buy your records they come to your shows i know it's a little irritating sometimes if you're not in a great mood but you gotta right. pick your stuff up and do the right thing in my humble opinion or or you can be like uh, one of your fellow canadian rockers who's who's no longer with us uh, neil from rush he right. was he was not into he just i guess he's a, was a shy guy and so uh getty and and alec would always do the um the meet and greets and everything and, and it just wasn't neil's thing and people just knew that and it's cool and that's right. fine too 
Yeah, that that's cool too. I, yeah. He started that right at right at the beginning. You know, he worked real hard up there, and when he's done, he's done. He's, yeah. he's out of the building. He's out of the building before anybody else is well, out of the building. If right. if anyone deserves to get out of the building and go take a rest, it was it's Neil for sure. Yeah, the best drummer, I think, one of the best drummers in the world by far. Incredible. No one, uh, undeniable. No one can argue us on that one. What a great band as well. Oh man, they got some great stuff. I know. I wonder what those two guys are going to do next. I mean, they can't. I mean, they might not record as Rush, but I, I, it'll be hard to believe that they won't write songs or or record. It, it, I don't know. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll just retire. You but know what? You sit around for a while, and then you go, "Gotta, you got to do something because it's just flowing out of you." Right? I got a song on my uh, computer right now. Is just working on. I could even play it for you, but the uh, it's like a mole's working on something, and uh, you know it's just what it, what we do, and even in this downtime, because you got to understand this has never happened in the in our lifetime. This kind no. of uh, down period, I haven't had a summer off in fifty years. Now I know that sounds ridiculous, but I started traveling and working as a drummer singer when I was fifteen. Wow! And now you know, so I've been I've been on the road for for fifty years, and it's just something you do. So I haven't had a summer off in that long. So we got a lot of time on our hands, but like, this is a crazy experience we're all going through. I can't even believe it's happening. It's like a twilight zone. uh, It really is like a twilight zone. I I mean, yeah, we're just, I mean, we're just all hanging in there and doing what we can do. And um, people have to start taking care of themselves and taking care of others and doing what we're supposed to do. So it's an airborne virus. I mean, yeah. So we breathe air. I mean, it's just the worst thing that can happen. And I guess it's happened before. I mean, you know, uh, millions of people have died in the past. Yeah. It's a flu, but you hardly think that you're going to you're going to die from the flu, but Right. Boy, some people are taking it real hard and they're just not making it. And I, I my heart goes out to families that have lost members and it's yeah. just horrible. And then you think in your head you're like, "Oh, well, if I got it, I feel healthy. If I got it, would I get through it?" You, you right. just don't know. You just don't know how it Hit. You know, some people die in three days. What, what's that all about? Yeah, How can you die in three days? And then some people in the hospital for over a month or more and, and survive it. Yeah. But still, that's a hard month, I'm sure, on a ventilator. And it's just crazy times. I mean, hospitals are terrible anyways. Like if you're in, I mean, it's nice if you need it. But yes. to be in the hospital isn't a fun experience, believe no. me. And uh, I think everybody probably knows that. Yeah. But this is, seems to be where everything, Every I watch the news every night and it's like, this guy's sick, this guy's dying, this guy's gone. Hundreds of people are, yeah. are, are getting it. Hundreds of people are, 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 are getting better. Thousands of people are getting better. But a lot of people don't make it. It's just, it's unbelievable. And now we can't do concerts. We no. can't travel. Uh, we don't want to go on airplanes. I know I don't. No. Um, I don't. And no, how are you going to get 5,000 people in a room anymore? Or how, any, you know, because... What are you going to do? Yeah. And now there's things singing and talking is the stuff that spreads it. it that's spreads that's it. what I know. That's living. what you do for a living. <laughs> you can't sing from behind a mask. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a tough time, Pat. And I, I wish everybody good luck out there. And I wish everybody could help the uh, existence and uh, stay safe. Yeah. You know? I, I think that's uh, everyone that's, um, that's intelligent. That's their thinking. So thanks. Thanks for that. Now, Let's go way back. I'm going to go back to 1978. Your first, uh, is, was, this, was the band Moxie? Is that the first time Mike Reno recorded in a professional setting? Uh, yes. Well, I recorded in a, in a group in Calgary called Hammersmith. Okay. Which 
never really got released, but I remember it was a pretty cool deal. They were bring, they brought me in the studio and it was you know fantastic and I kind of learned what to do. But the whole thing with Moxie was I was in a real popular band in Calgary, Alberta, and that was back when every uh, hotel had a bar and in every bar was a stage, and every night of the week there was bands playing. So there was fourteen to twenty bands around Calgary, Alberta, and then Edmonton was a whole other mm-hmm. thing. It was it's north. And, you know, Red Deer was halfway in between and everybody had bands. So it was very competitive. So I was in this band that was very popular. And I guess the group Moxie had lost their singer. And I think he had passed away in a motorcycle accident. Which okay. Was terrible. And they had heard that through, through one of the people, you know, who to- does the big touring stuff in the arenas that helps out, uh, helps the promoter said you got to hear this mike reno guy he's he's really really good which is nice yeah and and so i got a call and they, they said i said well send me your send me your records and i'll see if, see what we can do so I, I remember they sent me a package of records and i was so nervous to open them i, I cut the knife and i cutting the record thing open <laughs> and the knife went to the end and went and it just sliced a four inch slice in my chest oh my god <laughs> I, was, I, was, I had no shirt on i was you know i was young and it was just one of those things that just bled. It looked like, you know, I just got stabbed. Yeah, you look like Iggy Pop. It did, yeah, I didn't really need a stitch or anything. But So that's how excited I was to open this package. Okay. And so I throw the records on and I'm listening to them. I said, geez, these guys are pretty good. And so I agreed to go out to uh, Toronto, which is a big move because Toronto is the biggest, uh, biggest city in Canada. And it's like, wow. And the whole thing, like the guys from Rush just lived down the road. And they used to come to the house that the whole band lived in. Yeah. It was a band yeah. house with roadies and band guys. And Geddy Lee would come over in his Porsche. And I'd go, man, look at that Porsche. And he goes, That's a bass player for Rush. And I'm going, yeah. holy fuck. Anyways, because anyways, it was just a wacky time. But that was, I was put under the, under the pressure. They thought I was this fantastic, like, new songwriter guy. Mm-hmm. So I had to, like, jump right in. And it's like I just dove in. I didn't really know that much about songwriting, but I had to do it because I was on the spot. Yeah. And so I came up with a whole bunch of songs and every song on the album, actually. So we went in to do an album and we recorded with Jack Richardson and uh, Brian Christensen was the engineer. These are the people that, that worked with like uh, uh, Bob Seger and Pink Floyd and, you know, Alice Ezra. Cooper. I think Alice Cooper. Yeah. Alice Cooper. Yeah. yeah. And so this was like a big deal for me. Experience was like a, a notch or ten about above anything I've done. Before. Sure. So I was just like on cloud nine, and uh, I lived there for you know for three years, 
until I kind of realized that the band was only going to go so far because they didn't want to do anything extra in okay. my mind. Gotcha. I didn't like the management. It didn't seem right for me. The record company was kind of a bit bogus. The guys didn't want to practice or write songs all the time. They just, you know, it was just one of those kind of things. And after a while, I just went, I think I'm going to shut this down and then move back west. So I did that, which was probably, you know, one of those things, you know, it's like a very good move. Um, I can could, I could attribute it to meeting Paul Dean. You know, it's like I wouldn't have met Paul had I not done that right at the right time. I saw all kinds of wacky things that make this uh, this, this this journey of ours on Earth. Yeah. I'll give you an example. My my mom and dad, or my dad's parents, lived. They lived in Poland, but they wanted to leave Poland in 1939. Not a bad idea. No, you know what I'm that's saying? a good that's a good one. And it, they just saw too many people walking around with the same kind of uniforms, yeah. and they went, "Let's get the boys, my dad and his brother, my uncle, and let's get out of Dodge." Like if that hadn't happened, I, you know, I might not even be here. Yeah. You know, the same thing is when, when I met Paul, you know, if yeah. I hadn't come across the country right at that right time, I might not have met Paul and we might not have had this bad. It's much easier to leave Moxie than it is to leave Poland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you're getting it. There you go. There's a couple of great tunes, though, on this Moxie album, uh, High School Queen and Under the Lights. So you can be proud of those uh, of those songs and, and the album. You sound great on it and you look great. listen to it and I hear your voice I'm just like you know I know that I know the rest of the story now but it just seemed like you were destined for something uh, you know b- bigger so well it's just one of those things you know I, I played it out as, as best I could and then and then I moved on it's mm-hmm. just, and I, I kind of think wow it was the right choice right choice yeah, absolutely now real quick about Paul Dean Whenever I get in a discussion about guitar players with people and the question always comes up, who's underrated? Who do you think's an underrated guitar player? It's for me, it's Paul Dean. I see you guys live and the guy is incredible. I mean, just phenomenal. I'm blown away every time. Like I forget until I see you live and then that guy is crushing it. So Paul Dean's the, the underrated guitar player in my book. Well, I'd have to totally agree with you. He's, and, uh, you know, him and I, when we write songs, he's, he's always, key. you know what, it, it, kind of interesting about Paul, Paul and I's songwriting in, at the beginning, like if you listen to a song like um, 
like the kid is hot tonight, which mm-hmm. is probably our first single. Yeah. You've, you've never heard any other songs like that. If you really listen to that song and listen to all kinds of other songs, there's really nothing like the kid is hot tonight. It had like three courses on it. It just kept building and building and building and building. And there was guitar and there was keyboards and there was harmony. structured it's structured different than most songs mm-hmm. and i thought that's it. i didn't even know that at the time but you know after after kind of a lot of reflection and, and listening back to the song they play the kid is hot on the radio a lot and it sounds great after all these years it, it was it just popped up in my uh, ipod the other day when i was uh you know on on the treadmill and um it, it does it's i never tire of that song because of all the things that you just said it still sounds great it's like um Carry on, Wayward Son. I never get tired of that song. It's just there's oh, so much happening. Speaking of Carry on, My Wayward Son, that's the first uh, tour we we did in the United States is with Kansas. And you were you, you, you were opening for Kansas. Opening for Kansas. Excellent. First album, out of the box. Our our management had a connection with the production company Beaver Productions, and they put on all the concerts. And it was just lucky. I've been thinking about it recently a lot of it is after listening to some of your podcasts like the one with uh, randy bachman mm-hmm. for instance he was talking about how he went down to the states and was working with with kansas then he was working with cz talk we did the same thing yeah so it was almost like because our management because managed uh, right after bto our management handled us and then right after us they handled brian adams yeah right after brian adams they handled michael buble you know what i'm saying here <laughs> right it's just, you know, they just yeah. can't lose these guys. Yeah. And so it was a wonderful time for us. And I, I, I remember he was uh, Steve Walsh and still is one of my favorite singers in the world. Yeah, he's great. And to see him sing every night, I was like, you can't even, you can't pay. You can't pay to have an experience like this. I'm standing this close to Steve Walsh. And he's singing all those great songs, and I'm just freaking. And they go, "Come on, we got to go to the next town. Come on!" I go, "I'm sticking around. I got to stick around. So you got to go. You got to go." And I'm going, "I can't. I got." And I didn't want to leave. And it was an amazing experience. So that band was so tight. Yeah, 
man, they, they were so great live. And what a bunch of great guys, too. Loverboy, it's hard to categorize this band. You guys are arena rock, but then you got some new wave in there. You got a little bit of punk in there. And then you can hit us with a ballad. So you guys are covering a lot of bases. I mean, it's easy to say, well, it's easy to pigeonhole any band. But, uh, but you guys, I feel, cover a lot of, you guys do a lot of stuff. And I love it. Oh, thank you, Pat. You know what's funny? We we kind of decided to mix to, to to mix it up a little bit because we had all these different things that were happening um, just in the music scene. And while we were writing stuff and you're hearing stuff, one of the big eye openers for us. Well, there was two of them. One was Boston. You know, give me a break on that sound. That's like a wall right. of sound with Boston, right? Like, how do they even do that? I've never heard a better recording <laughs> in my life. Right. Boston. You know, it's just insane. I, I come from the school of like uh, Humble Pie and, and uh, Free, which is all basic recordings. You know, they're almost scratchy. Yeah. And that Boston come out and it's like, what is that? <laughs> it's like insane. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. think you could do that. Boston sounds like digital before digital existed. It's so Oh, I know. Clean. It was just so fantastic. But also right around a little later than that, but right around when we were working, a, a band came out that totally blew our minds with the simplicity and the use of different instruments. And that band was the Cars. Yes. One guy play, the rest of them just kind of stop. And then the other guy comes in, down, 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 down. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the guitar does his thing and then the vocals come up here. It's just like this crazy stuff. Yeah. And it was perfectly, perfectly written songs. And that uh, those kind of bands had a lot of impact on, on our beginnings. So we had... And then we also liked Elvis Costello and, you know, bands like that. So we, we were kind of coming from all these different angles. And I, I came from Free and Humble Pie. And 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 Paul came from kind of a, a real rhythm and blues place. You know, with, he plays a lot of rhythm, funky rhythm yeah. guitar stuff. And that's how he comes up with a lot of these song riffs. And so there was all kinds of things coming at us from everywhere. So we had a, you know, a feeling at the time it was, you know, was, we were mixing it up. And I remember saying, we have like a punk rock song. We have a ballad. We have a, a kind of a new wave thing going. And then we have a total rock thing going. We had a lot of things on the first album. And it didn't seem like you were trying too hard. It didn't seem like you guys were grasping at straws. It, it felt organic and it felt like this is what we do. We do a little bit of everything. So there's going to be something here you like. There might be a song you don't like, but, this is us. And I, I really enjoy it. I want to ask you about the album cover for the first album because it's, uh, the, the cover model. I don't know if that's a guy or a girl. It's very androgynous. It, um, I just don't know what to make of it. Like when I picked up that album, it was, um, it was different. I, I, you know what I'm saying? I was, I mean, now, now that would be the norm. Now that album cover would be everywhere. But in 1980, that was I, I didn't I didn't know what was going on. I'm like I looked on the back then, so I knew it wasn't a member of the band, and I'm it was it was interesting. How did that cover come to be? Well, there there you go. You got to hand a few things to the record companies. You know, like record companies, you got a mixture of good and bad, just like any other business. But they did have some a lot of fingers in the pie of art things, like artwork and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we were working and doing stuff, so we really didn't come up come up with any ideas a lot of bands come up with their own album covers but a lot of them don't yeah so we were paying more attention to the music and stuff but when we got that sent to us paul and i looked at each other and went oh whoa is that ever weird and 
And then we kind of looked at it a little closer. And I don't know if you even noticed this, if you looked close enough. There is words to one of our songs. Yes. Across it, the it, front. Yeah. Very subtle. Is, yeah. What it was is the, the artist and photographer, Barbara Aston, I believe. She took a Polaroid, which is what they do to check lighting and, and, and composition. They mm-hmm. take a Polaroid, which is the kind of thing where you take, you pull it out of that Polaroid camera. These are professional Polaroid. And then you count to like 10 and then you tear the thing off and look at the composition. And so what she did is she took a picture of herself in the black clothes, really skinny, kind of punk look with the smoke hanging out of her mouth. It was actually a woman with lipstick. And instead of just doing that, she took the Polaroid picture over to an old typewriter and she typed the lyrics to one of our songs right across the whole thing. And as it typed, it splashed all the letters around and gave it this really funky, weird look. As soon as I saw it, I went, that's amazing. That, that is fantastic. That's an and, artist. Yeah, I, I thought, that's great. And then we just went with it. So that was kind of cool. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a cool album cover. And, um, and, uh, and then the Lover Boy is, yeah, it's just, that's kind of your logo, and it, but it's just typewriter font. And that is our logo. It's typewriter font that's got splash on it. Yeah. Some of the letters splash off, and, there's, and we just stuck with it. Yeah, it just stuck with That's good, because a band. I, I love bands that stick with a logo, you know, like Cheap Trick or, you know, Kiss yeah. or Aerosmith. I mean, brand it right out of the box, for sure. Yeah. It, yeah. It, would, yes. Yes had great album covers. Like, what is that? You got, uh, you got hits with The Kid Is Hot Tonight and Turn Me Loose, and then the, the deep cuts, like Teenage Overdose, Lady of the 80s, Little Girl is so new wavy and punk. I just love Little Girl. I think the artist loved it too because that's the song that she wrote the lyrics. That's to. the song. Okay. The uh, she must have really done, she must have connected with that song. You get five. How could you make you love me? How could you drive me wild? It was kind of that was that was kind of a bit of the Cars vibe in there. I, absolutely, it is. Uh, and also, it's a bit of rockabilly in there too. Five times platinum in Canada. What is platinum? How many units is platinum in Canada? Here, it's a million. Uh, Hundred thousand. Hundred hundred thousand. So you sold half a million units in Canada, and you sold two million in the U.S. Out of the yeah, box. The ones in Canada ended up going up to nine hundred thousand, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's really I cool. Who's count, but who's counting? Um, <laughs> We're, you're, you're counting. We count. Um, Bruce Fairbairn. Am I saying it's Fairbairn? Is that how you say it? That's how you actually say it. Okay. Everyone just called him Bruce Fairbairn. It's the but first Fairbairn, you said it right. The first time I've ever seen his name on an album was that first Loverboy album, and then a few years later, his name's everywhere. How right. did you guys get hooked up with him? 
And again, well, rock, there, rock in peace to Bruce because he's also no longer with us. Yes, he, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's up listening to the interview from the best seat in the house, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and we miss him too. He's a fabulous producer. He was the kind of producer that uh, was smart enough to let you do, like he would see the band play and he'd just go, he put his hands up and go, let's just press the record button. <laughs> and Good. Just, and he also had the insight to say, let's not do overdubs. Because then it sounds like you got three guitar players and two keyboard players and yeah. five singers. You know what I mean? So we kept it really simple, which I thought was a good thing, especially when you try to translate it to live. Right. Because a lot of people, you know, I, I say this humbly, that a lot of people say we sound even better live than we do on record, which is to me a huge compliment. It's definitely but a compliment. A lot of that was to start with Bruce Fairburn, who, if you want to do a little bit of research... He was the writer, producer, and player on some of the tracks. He played he played horns, like trombone and trumpets and stuff, on an album that he co-produced with a guy named Rodney Higgins, which is actually Jim Valance. Ah, okay. Actually, Brian Adams' writing, writing partner. partner. Sure, I know so that name. Rod, Rodney Higgins was his uh, pseudonym, and if you look it up, Bruce Fairburn and Rodney Higgins wrote and produced an album from prism and that is a great album too if you if you look in if you try to find that in your archives the I album, think first I have, album i think prism. i have that album to be honest i'll have to Take search the, afterwards captain and spaceship superstar i'm a spaceship superstar <laughs> with my laser power powered beam guitar <laughs> i mean it's oh, fantastic so how do you get hooked up with him for the first album does the, does, the, does the record company pair you up, or do you just know him and you guys decide on him? Um, and once again, this, I'm going to have to attribute this to both the record. Uh, one of the guys in the record company, Jeff Burns, uh, from Toronto. He was the one who gave us the start on, on Columbia Records. He's the one that said, here's some money to record the first album. I believe in you guys. Um, we had about 13 different companies pass on us, so we thought we were losers for many months mm -hmm. until Jeff Burns says, I hear this, and I'm, I want you to go in the studio. And Bruce Allen, our manager, and uh, Jeff Burns suggested we use Bruce Fairburn, another Vancouver guy, and he was going to do our album. And his engineer of choice was Bob Rock. Now, if that doesn't get you going crazy, yeah. and the second engineer was Mike Fraser. Yep, and these guys, these guys... Mike Fraser now does ACDC albums. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Bob, Bob Rock, Rock does, does Metallica. Everything. He does everyone. It's crazy. So everybody got their start at the same time, and it also made uh, the recording studio, Little Mountain Sound, mm -hmm. famous. Yeah, because, um, you know, uh, Aerosmith recorded Pump Up There with Bruce, and I mean... Absolutely. In, in permanent Vacation, I mean, it's... it's Motley Crue are up there. Yep, it's, the a, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal White up there. Stank. Yep. Uh, uh, bad English. Uh, oh, just the list goes on and on. A bunch of European bands. That place had two studios, so you'd, you'd record live on one side, and then you'd tend to move across to the other side where you can do, like, overdubs and vocals and stuff. And another band would come right in behind it. And it, you'd be using the bathroom or walking up to the kitchen, and it'd be, like, Steven Tyler standing there talking to <laughs> Bon Scott. For, or not Bon Scott, but... Uh, Brian, Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson from uh, ACDC and, and Aerosmith, I'm kind of standing in there because I was called in to do some background vocals on the Bon Jovi record kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's Unbelievable. Like, Are you kidding me? This is all a little <laughs> about town. And we kind of felt like we started it all. 
but you know, yeah. I don't want to go as far as saying that. Right, but every, so, you were on the ground floor of all of this, the Bob Rock, the the Frazier, the Bruce, the whole thing. It was you guys were studio, yeah, ground studio, zero for uh, all this whole thing. Cool. Absolutely. And I and we really felt proud of, of that our city. People would come to Vancouver because they really enjoyed the fact that the, the city was a fun place to live in. And people left them alone. They didn't bother them so much. Well, until Bon Jovi got there. Yeah. Then there was a crowd of people out front of the... Out front of the studio every night that you had to kind of swim through, you know, to get to the studio. To Damn it, Bon Jovi! Um, yeah. So the the first three albums also feature some background vocals from a woman named Nancy Nash. Tell me about Nancy Nash because I I don't know about her. I've only seen her name on your first three records. Nancy Nash is basically the go to gal to sing all of all the things, like to sing all the stuff like commercials. Okay. Uh, Jingles. Yeah, singles, okay. backing backing tracks on uh, groups. Bruce Fairburn used her. Okay. So he came along and added those cool parts, you know, uh, to some of the songs, like Turn Me Loose and stuff. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was very cool, but, you know, that was a really cool addition to that song. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's 1981 now. You got to head into the studio to do the sophomore album. Are you feeling pressure because the first album... Uh, did pretty well or are you guys just going to continue to do what you do and, and hope for the best? Because what happens is the sophomore slump does not happen. You guys have like a sophomore surge with, <laughs> with get lucky. Well, we'd only been home for like four days after getting off that first tour with Kansas. Uh, we didn't have any time and they booked a studio. They couldn't even get in the studio that we created the buzz for because people were lined up to record in there. Okay. We ended up having to go to a different studio which was kind of cool, but it was different because the, all the equipment in there was like uh, stuff from the 60s. It was antique. The knobs on them were this big. You know, they had like knobs this big. Yeah. And you'd have to go over to EQ it with a screwdriver. They just had little things that you'd EQ with a <laughs> screwdriver. I kid you not. I believe you. But, but groups like Hart just finished recording a few records in there. Um, and it was called Mushroom Studios. And... We had to go in with a different, uh, a, a whole different point of view. But we came off the road, so we were like, we were tuned up, you know. We were because we played every night live and traveled and played, and we had written some songs on the road. And boom, we went right in the studio for five weeks and cut that whole album in five weeks. It's incredible. It's a classic. It's it's, I mean, it's. Uh... What do I want to say? It, it, it's the one. If someone's bringing a copy to get signed, it's probably get lucky. Probably right. It made it made the album cover of the century too. Like you know, they picked a thousand album covers in this book, mm -hmm. and uh, the get lucky album cover made. I thought the first one should have made it too, but uh, whatever. We got one in there anyways. Get lucky. The album cover is so. It's just so simple. The crossing of the fingers and the title. It just. It says everything. It says everything you need to know. It's, uh, you know, I sang, I sang the words "get lucky" in the song "Lucky" once as an ad lib thing. I just went "get lucky," <laughs> and when the, the when the artist and the photographer and everything heard that album, and they, they and the guy says, "Well, what does this band sound like?" I go, "Well, here's the album." He says, "Well, what do they do? What do they wear and stuff?" And the guy says, "Well, it was, a couple of guys wear red leather pants. They got leather." They, funny thing is, we had our management. I had a girl working there named uh, Allison. Her husband owned the best leather shop in Vancouver. It was famous. Okay. Nettle leather. Wonderful. And 
she said, my husband said, you guys can go down there and grab anything you want. And uh, we'll just put it on a, on a list. You guys can pay us when you start making some money, which I thought was a great offer. Right? Pretty nice. Yeah. So uh, we all kind of went down there and grabbed like five, six pairs each, you know, as much as we didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We said, but we had blue ones and yellow ones and red ones and green ones. And, and we had the gamut. So we'd pass them around because back then we were all kind of the same size. <laughs> I say back then. Um, I say that with a little grin on my face. Um, you look good, anyway, Mike. You, you look great right now. <laughs> Seriously. Well, well I'm, an, I'm an older gentleman and I, I've kind of definitely filled out a little bit, but you know, that's what it is. That's yeah. what I am. Every, yeah. You look good. Back then, I was like a toothpick. I look at you guys were all super skinny for sure. Yeah, that's because you. That was, you yeah, you, that's when we couldn't afford food. Yeah, exactly. Then <laughs> the more success, that's when you're you're eating a little better. You're drinking the the finer stuff too. So absolutely. So this this just everything. This album is so great. Working for the weekend, it's like you you can never get on stage and not sing that. Never, you no, can't. Yeah, people it, love it. You almost don't even have to sing it. They sing it. For they you. sing it for you. Then, and you know what? What a fabulous time that is singing live. Mm -hmm. They know these songs and they really love it. It's, it's, you know what it is? It's, and this is kind of what I miss the most. It's a, quite, it's a joyous experience mm -hmm. playing live at this stage in our lives for a bunch of reasons. But one of them is that the crowds are so happy to be there and they're so sing-along proud and happy. It's their stuff and they love it. They look at each other and they go, this is my song. You know what I mean? And they just all love it. And that, that to me is a, such a joyous time that I really love being on the road doing that. And I miss that the most. And it's, and, and that song in particular, it's an anthem for anyone who works nine to five, 40 or more hours a week. And you you are, you're working for the weekend. It's, it's so, it's, it's such a s simple idea, but yet you guys had it and you nailed it. joyous when people are singing that live they love it it just yeah. makes them feel we're, we're out we're, this is our night we're partying we're having fun we're, we're we're seeing a show it's it's everything that song so bravo it's, it's great and it's high it's a, it's up tempo and a lot of fun and, and and just one of the highlights of our evening's concert that's for sure uh a, another great deep cut on this album is jump it's got a great opening riff and scott's bass is just kicking ass on that song it is fantastic
this. He had a really cool bass at the time. It was called a Spectre. And it was more of a mid than a low. You know, some basses are really low. Mm-hmm. The Spectre was kind of like do 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 almost a bit trebly. And the way we recorded it just sounded great. So yeah, he did he played fantastic in that song. I think we got that song was originally sent to us. Oh, Brian Adams and uh, Jim Valance started that song. Okay. Paul and I took took the song and we added a bunch of stuff to it and made it kind of lover boy. We kind of lover boyed it. And uh, <laughs> and that was a fun song too. We play that live all the time. And then uh, Lucky Ones, as you mentioned earlier, It's Your Life, Watch Out. And then when the album got re-released uh, with some bonus tracks, uh, like an anniversary edition, there was a demo on there called Boy Likes the Girl which I, I think it's phenomenal. I mean, it's a demo, so obviously maybe it, it wasn't quite finished or it wasn't up to snuff, but I, I think it's fantastic. So you say you want to get down and talk it all over. Then you say you ain't got the time. recorded live at a, at a uh, nightclub and I haven't heard that song for a long time but I remember this boy likes the girl yes I know yeah it's a good you know, tune like, I, 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 I don't even think we had all the lyrics together for that one but we had the idea and when the uh, record company asked us to, to throw some fun things in at the time people were throwing stuff in that they hadn't quite finished and they were working on or that re- they recorded live somewhere and just to make it like an interesting package, yeah, um, we decided to throw that one in. And I actually, after after we talk, I might have a listen to that. You might have to go listen. Moving on for you uh, as a as just a solo performer in 1982, you do a duet with Sammy Hagar on his Three Lock Box album. You do a song called "Remember the Heroes."
I love that. You guys sound great together. How's this work? When, once, you're, once you're a big famous rock star, does uh, Sammy Hagar just give you a call and go, hey, I'd like you to sing on this? Or are you in the studio by accident and it just happens? How do these things happen, Mike? Tell me. I don't know. I'm in my house in Southern California. Well, you know what? I think I got a call from uh, from Keith Olson, who was producer. Right. And sadly, he passed away this year as well. Boy, Mike, we're talking about a lot of people that have have passed. So I'm I'm glad I'm glad that I'm glad Rest. that Sammy and and you and and uh, you know a lot of you guys are still here with us. But so you get a call from um, Keith Olson. Yeah, and he says, uh, "Would you be interested in singing a song with Sammy Hager?" And Nick, and I said, "Absolutely, you crazy!" And and because he was in the band Montrose, which I I loved. When I played in the, my Calgary band, we played a bunch of uh, Montrose songs live, and off off their records and I uh, loved it and I couldn't believe when Sammy called me up he says hey Reno how are you at the hotel I'm going to pick you up <laughs> so I, I'm standing up front whenever and up comes this screaming yellow Ferrari just like Wah! you know one of those really loud ones and his hair is all out there and he's that's so California right I just mm-hmm. it's great I hopped on the passenger side we ripped over to the studio he said he took the long way around so I could feel the car out. I just was super <laughs> excited, and uh, and then we went in and we cut. I cut the track and he cut the track. And at the end of the night, it didn't take us that long. Keith asked me if we want to if I want to go for dinner. He said Sammy has to go. He's got something else to do tonight. And you're in town by yourself. Do you want to go out for dinner? And I said sure. So what does he do? He takes me to the Ventura Airport. We hop in his a little plane he had. And we flew to Santa Barbara and had dinner. Oh I said, God. this is the rock star life. That's I said, I wasn't star. really experiencing that yet. That's kind of the first time I experienced the Ferrari, the private plane, the flight of Santa Barbara thing. I was way out of my limits, uh, my comfort zone. But I learned to like it. That's it. a perfect ha- Sammy Hagar story. He's he, he comes in a Ferrari. His hair's crazy. You guys drive around. Then you fly for dinner with the producer. That's the best. It, <laughs> That's the best. It, and it happened. I mean, it and could it happened. be a movie, Yeah. You know? Uh, all right. Uh, keep it up. Bruce Fairburn still producing. You get it. You got the album in front of you. Maybe you could tell me. Uh, He is. He is. I think it's credited to Bruce and Paul. I think Paul might have a co-producer credit on that. Paul was kind of working on, on, on a lot of the producing. Now he wanted to get in there. I think he wanted, Paul wanted to be, I love Paul. He's a good total the best friend, but he wanted to get in. He wanted to be the engineer too. I think, you know, he really <laughs> wanted, he was in there like he, yeah. and he yeah. ended up buying like a mixing board, just like the one we used in the studio. Sweet. Which, you know, they had to rearrange his house to get it in. It was like 48 channels of SSL, uh, you know, mixing console, all computerized. Uh, he was into it. So oh. we, we just let him go with it. Right, Paul. And so Bruce and Paul worked together on the production we all jumped in there and did the best we could. At this time, we were starting, um, I can even admit this, we were starting to get a little tired of album tour, album tour, yeah. album tour. You know, because it's just after a while, it's just exhausting. Of course. So, so then we, you know, we did we did the best job we could on that record. I saw you on this tour also, Pittsburgh Civic Arena. The band that opened was Zebra. Oh yeah, I just got a, <laughs> I just got a note from the drummer from Zebra. He he, he said uh, he saw something on on uh, Facebook or something. Yeah. and wanted to say hi, and I went, "Wow, that's great!" Yeah, Zebra were a good band, three piece. They yes, a lot yeah, of a lot of noise for a three piece. 
We got uh, Hot Girls in Love goes to number 11 in the U.S. That's not shabby. Isn't that fun, huh? And yeah. then that video, how embarrassing is that? Um, I don't know if you remember. Oh, this. no, you are you guys playing on top of a radio or something? It's yeah, it's like whiskey barrels. Yes, that's what it is. It's whiskey, barrels. whiskey barrels. And we're on top of the whiskey barrels and we're jumping around, and there's there's gas pumps and there's hot chicks. We had hot chicks in all our videos, right? I mean, you know, the group's lover boy. What are you supposed to do? You gotta have some chicks in there. <laughs> so. <laughs> And then, uh, then Queen of the Broken Hearts. There's an MTV contest oh. where someone's going to win, and they're going to be in your video for Queen of the Broken Hearts. You don't even want to hear this story, do you? Well, of, well it's one of the be- one of our best stories. But. I didn't know there was a story to it, but now that there is, of course, I want to hear it. <laughs> I, I don't want to go over on your show because this is a pretty huge story. Mike, let me tell you something. I don't know how much time you have, but I I just want to keep getting through the catalog and bring us up to the present. But when you need to go, you can just give me the high sign, but let's, let's continue with this story, please. Okay. Well, MTV decided like we were the darlings of MTV. Basically. I think I can say that without, you know, sounding like uh, I'm, my head's full of myself, but sure. You know, we became very popular MTV. We did lots of stuff for them. They did lots of stuff for us. You know, it was like all working together. So, and they played, they had a heavy rotation on all our videos. So, you know, you like to help them out. So they decided to do a contest and they work it around. The winner of the contest would be in the video. And this video, by the way, was produced by David Fincher. He was the director. Wow. Because that's, you know what what that's what he did back then. But that must have been a real early one. You know, all those movies, like, you know. Yeah, seven. He's doing, he's doing them all. Yeah. He's still doing them all. I think he, he cut his teeth on Loverboy video. Yep. But anyway, uh, not to take any credit for that because it was all him. Um, so the deal was we had a contest, and not only would they be in the video, but they would fly to the North Pole with Loverboy on a Concorde jet. All righty. And land on an ice field. Now, can it get any more crazy than that? No. A, a Concorde jet, which I've never been on except that one time. I don't think anybody we know has been on a Concorde. No. And landing a Concorde jet, which is the fastest, highest jet in, ever made, on an ice field in the North Pole, just hold it right there. You know, give me a break. Slap, slap, slap. How does that even happen? So this girl, this lady won, and it, it she put her, her name in because she wanted her daughter to win. Okay. But her daughter was so freaked out, she wouldn't go. And the mother ended up coming, and they picked her up in a limousine, and they took her out to the Mojave Desert. Now, this, you know what I'm saying? We got to this shooting from this 
this video by helicopter. They brought her out in a limo. And for whatever reason, she was tasting all the different drinks they had in the in the in the in the glass, you know, <laughs> containers in the limo. Sure. And I think she was a mixture of nervous and she decided she was not getting out of the limo. You know, so we're shooting the video, shooting the video. Second day she comes. We're just doing all last minute shots for different things. And now it's time for her and she won't get out of the bloody car. So somebody almost like had to find an extra key and get her out of the car and pulled her on and they put her in a chair. Yeah. In the control room. Yep. I remember. And when these girls finally chased us and they were trying to find us, there was this control room in a cave. It was all crazy. (laughs) They put her in there and the camera just went like this. And she was in the video for like a quarter of a second. That's the mom that's in the video. Right. The daughter didn't want to do it. She was right. too freaked out. So the mom is in the video. Right. That. It, and that, the same it, person, I think the daughter ended up going with us to uh, uh, the North Pole. Okay. Now, you got to imagine, <clears throat> first we went to New York and then got on the Concorde, which went to London. We had a few days off in London to do a bunch of press and stuff. Then we flew from London to Reykjavik, Iceland which they called the home of uh, the North Pole at the time. And when we got out, we were picked up, I kid you not, in a sled that fit two or three people in it, driven by reindeer, I kid you not, (laughs) which were basically caribou, right? Big caribou. So I've never even seen things like this. It was like I was out of some kind of a weird Fellini movie, right? You're from Canada. You're from Canada and you've never seen this, so... Well, you know, I've, I've hit, a, hit a few moose on the way touring through Canada accidentally, of course, but um, to see reindeer or caribou pulling us across the sled and going to this shack where Santa Claus was, I mean, the whole thing is just insane. That, that's, the stories are getting more rock and roll and more uh, out of control. <laughs> yeah, it was, and, you know, we were, like, having a pretty good time in London. I think we were throwing money out the top of a cab, and it was like, oh, it was crazy. You know, we were totally doing rock star stuff at that point. All right, moving on to 1984. See, we're moving on down the line. Footloose soundtrack, you sing a duet, Almost Paradise, with Ann Wilson, goes to number seven in the U.S. The album sells nine million copies. First, I want to know how you get asked to do that. And then I want to know how does the band feel when Mike, the singer from our band is now 
front and center with Ann Wilson. It's not Loverboy's not the backing band on this song, correct? No, it's uh, Keith Olson. It was uh, Keith Olson. I asked him to produce it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I was asked to sing the song, and they said, you could sing this song with anybody you want. Like, who do you want? And immediately, like a second later, I just went, well, I pick Ann Wilson from Heart. Perfect. You know, they were almost Vancouver people. Like, I mean, they, they were in Vancouver for like 11 years. Yeah. They were playing in like the best bar band in, in the country. And people lined up to see them every night. And then they became songwriters and started writing songs. But they started off playing Wicked Led Zeppelin. So everybody wanted to see these guys, right? The girls, rather. So I asked, uh, I asked uh, my, my manager, basically, Bruce Allen, said, they want, you, they want you to do this song. I said, okay, great. Pick whoever you want. I picked Anne. And then we had to set up a time to do it because we were both on tour. So I think we had a two-day off thing, and we met in Chicago. And the track was basically uh, kind of a demo track, just a bit of drums, a bit of keyboards, just enough to sing along. And, you know, there's a kind of a whole big story about the recording of this thing. But in a nutshell, when Anne got there, she was a little flustered about something. Because, you know, we were touring and it was a day off. And so I wanted her to relax and, you know, just calm down a little bit. So we sat together in the uh, recording room with a microphone above us. And we I think we had a beer. Very Canadian thing to yeah. do. Uh, and just to relax. And then as we're talking about stuff, I just said, do you know the song? You know, she, you know, instead of having to practice the song, I just asked her, do you know the song? She yeah. goes, yeah, I, I know the song. I go, do you want to give it a try? And she says, sure. And we're almost like, it's almost like a date, <laughs> right? And uh, and now this so, isn't your first time meeting her. You've you've met Anne before. You you knew her. Not really, no. Oh, really? No. This is, okay, okay, cool. I've been idolizing her. Just, sure. I thought she was the best singers in rock. I still do. Right, I think she's the, the best female singer in rock. It's no doubt about it. And uh, so I'm, I'm a bit nervous too, but I'm trying to not to show it because you know we're sitting there just, and then the microphone's above us. And so I said to, I said to the guys, I said, I said, let's give it a go. You know, I'm talking up to the microphone. <laughs> so we stood up, they ran the track through our headphones, and we sang it in the same microphone once. I thought that dreams belong to other men Cause each time I got close They'd fall apart again I feared my heart would beat in sympathy I faced the nights alone Oh, how could I have known That all my life The song that I hear on the radio is one take. One take. And Keith Olsen went, thank you very much, almost jokingly. <laughs> and I went, really? He went, God, that was good. That's that incredible. 
Well, you know what? You guys are singing a duet. You're singing a love song. And the fact that you sat down and had a beer and you said it kind of felt like a date, that probably put you both in the mood for this performance. And that's why you nailed it the first time. I know I was a bit nervous. I, I could sense that she was something was bothering her a little bit. I don't, yeah. I don't think she was nervous to meet me by, by any chance, but by any means. But I think it was something like maybe she'd had a, you know, touring was starting to get to her or something. So, you know, so it was nice that we actually had a chance to just sit and talk for a little bit and then cut it. But doing it one time and then. It's That's incredible. Like, you know, there's one take Reno again, you know. It's like <laughs> they used to joke about it in the old days because when I, when I dig my teeth into a song, it's almost a keeper every time. Yeah. You know, I can I say that quite humbly, I hope. Uh, well, it didn't sound very humble, did it? Well, you're 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 saying it's humble. I, and, and we know it's humble, Mike. We know you're not you you don't you have you right. you haven't you haven't at any point so far sounded uh like a braggadocious or anything but but humble. So you're okay. we're good. We're all good. As long as, me, as long as people understand, yeah, I wasn't really bragging. No, I was just, that's kind of how it was. No, it was kind of a compliment back in the day. Like, sure. Let me ask. Let me ask you this: Before you record the song, do you have to go to the band though, and do you have to say, "Hey guys, they want me to sing this." Do you need to get permission? You know what I mean? Just as not per, <laughs> not not permission that you can't do what you want to do, but you know, as a courtesy. Here's the deal. To be honest with you, Paul thought it was a bad idea. Okay. And Paul and I kind of structured the band from the beginning, mm-hmm. so we did. We talked about a lot of things, you know. Would be Paul and I would talk about most everything, right? Okay, that's good. But management asked me to do it and said, "This is this is look, looking like a, it's going to be a really good movie and good soundtrack, mm-hmm. and they really want you to do it." So I thought that was kind of a nice thing, and so I said to Paul. After he says, you know, he actually even said, if you sing, do this, it's going to kill our careers, basically what he said, which I thought was a bit drastic. Yeah. So I said, turned it, I said to him, I tell you what, Paul, here's the way I look at it. If it is a shitty track and it's just going to go nowhere and just it's like the side of the road and just die and go away. If it's a great track, they're going to say, that's the guy from Loverboy. What a great track. I said, how is that a negative in any way? Yeah. How is that killing anything? He goes, well, it's a ballad. And I said, yeah, well, maybe they'll start to realize I can do ballads as well. You know, so it was one of those kind of conversations. So, and then it turned out to, to be a big deal. A, a monster. And, you know, and then it was, yeah, but it could have gone either way. It could have, right? yeah. But music, music's like that. So you put out the best album you ever did and nobody likes it. It's like, oh, well, you tried your best. You yeah. Know? But in this case... It was just like crazy, huge. We never actually did a video for it, which I thought was kind of silly. But uh, do you know that Ann and I have never sang that song again? Well, you, if you you did it right the first time, why taint it? <laughs> just... not, not even live. I mean, we 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 would play together with her a lot of times. It's... I said I would go to her. I said, "Do you want to sing?" She goes, "I don't want to. I'm not singing." I don't know what it was, but it, it just never happened. It's so funny. Um... If I if if I if I was at the show with Loverboy and Heart on the bill, that's what I would be thinking if I was in the audience. I'm like, I wonder if Mike and Ann are going to sing Almost Paradise together. I would be thinking that for sure. Because my band can play Almost Paradise really good. Yeah, and I imagine Heart could play it just as good or better. I mean, Heart a fantastic group. Yeah. I'm a. I'm, we do it with my wife sometimes. I, I've, like, so, I've seen you do it with your wife here in L.A. I think I, I saw you at the. Uh, 
Oh, what's the theater in Beverly Hills? I forget. I'm not pulling the name right now. But anyway, I, I did see you Sa- saying it. Sabian or Sabian. Saban. 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 I didn't um, know how to pronounce that. Well, yeah, you're right. You're you right there it. with me. I know. I know. <laughs> All right. 1985, loving every minute of it. Now, Bruce Fairbairn, he's not involved with this album. Was that, was he not available? Did you guys want to use someone different? Once again, in this case, Paul, uh, Bruce wasn't available. Okay. But the studio was available. All right. So we got to go back into Little Mountain Sound, and we were cutting it, and we went into Studio B, which is just the same as Studio A, in my opinion. There's not much difference. Uh, they're both big sound stages and perfect uh, facilities to record, you know, with the mixing boards and everything. And we used, uh, oh, jeez. You're thinking of the, pro- the producer, Tom Allum. Oh, Tom. Yeah, we used Tom. What a great guy. Tom Tom Allum had a, had a sentence. Uh, he learned after recording with Loverboy, like, we would play the track. And, we, we you know, we listened for some talk back. And he'd just go like this. Change nothing immediately. <laughs> like almost in like a Winston Churchill kind of vibe. And we just, because he just loved it when we played yeah. live, right? So, because the band's quite good live. I mean, you know what I mean? So if you're yeah. recording it, it's pretty, basically, there you go. And thank you. What else are you going to do to it, right? And so he was fun to work with. And, um, yeah, we had a really fun time with him. And he's he's been a friend for a while. I haven't seen him in a while, but... At the, at the time, I thought it was an interesting choice because he was known for his work with Judas Priest. Right. That's kind of why we wanted him, actually. I, I, was, I remember now they're talking about it with Paul. Paul wanted to try to do a little more guitar guitar stuff, like get a little deeper, a little heavier. And he, he wanted to go way over to one side, and I wasn't willing to go way over right. to that. I said, we've created here, so why do you want to go over here? You know, that's, yeah. that was my thing. I said... Yeah, there's let's just go a little bit here, yeah. maybe, but let's not go way over here. Well, there's I don't a want to sound like Metallica. Not that there's anything wrong with Metallica, but right. we weren't Metallica. That's not your sound. Um, there's a song on here called Friday Nights, which has a real heavy metal type opening riff that actually reminds me of, you know, almost Iron Maiden kind of in a way. So I think Paul got his wish a little bit on that song. Yeah, that was like a, I, I think we had toured in Germany 
And we got this whole like thing, and we used to kind of sing it in German, go Frog dot Nick or whatever for the German <laughs> push for it, you know. Right. It was kind of like a German like heavy duty like marching type song, you know. Nice. And we kind of got into it, and it was a fun song to record. Really high energy and a lot of good playing. And uh, and the title track went to number eleven. Loving every minute of it, written by Mutt Lang. And the first time I heard this song, I felt like. This sounded like a Def Leppard song. I cannot disagree with you, which never sucks in my opinion because nope. there's another one of the best bands in the world. Mm -hmm. Definitely, you can't beat those guys. Now, to, this producer uh, Mutt Lang, he was so instrumental in producing some of my favorite records: the Black Album by ACDC, yep. Warner Four. The list goes on. Cars, come on, Heartbeat City. Those three alone, there's millions of, of sales there, and the sounds and the simplicity. Like if they, if he was producing the Cars it would have this techno simplicity that was, and then it would just roll over like a rolling sea of textured sounds coming at you. I don't yeah. know how he did it. It was amazing. So anything to do with Mutt Lang, I said, I'm in. And management set us up with that one. Um, yep. Producer Tom said, we need one more song for this album. And we tried to find it because we didn't have one that we wanted mm -hmm. to record. We always record about eight more of the songs than we need. But when putting an album together with so much time you can put on each side of the record, the timing was we wanted one more song. And so I, this is actually, the story is for real. It goes back, there was no, this is even before uh, cell phones, um, before things you could, you couldn't email. It was before no. email. Yeah, none of it. So we were talking with Mutt Lang on the telephone from his studio in England. He played it. We recorded it holding a, a, a handheld, like a cassette a recorder. Yeah. Okay. To, to the phone, to the earpiece. And that's how we got the track. And then we listened to this little recording and we went out to the studio and we just started pounding away. Dun, 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 dun. And then we just loverboized it and cut the track and put a bunch of vocals on it. And, did the big chant thing, kind of like Def Leppard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we really liked, I thought Def Leppard were, were the shit, you know, yeah. and still are. So anything, you know, if we get get even remotely uh, compared to Def Leppard, I'm a happy guy. And so, and that was, you're saying that was the last track recorded for the album. Right. And it was recorded like right at the deadline. And, and then, so we got it finished and then we, we thought, what a great album. Do you know what that album covers? An interesting story, too. I mean, I hope I'm not telling too many stories. 
No, we, we, want, we want the stories, Mike. That's what we're here for. So we had your, a photo your, shoot. Your wife's tired of hearing the stories, but we're not. Yeah, I know. She's probably listening to the other room going, God, I hate that story. So, <laughs> so I don't know where the photo, photo shoot was, but I can't, I think it was probably in Los Angeles or something. So we're doing this photo shoot. And at the time, we wanted to kind of do the jeans and T-shirt thing. Sure. Just, no more it. leather pants. We're kind of trying to make a little change, get out of those, because the leather pants were horribly uncomfortable. And then when they got wet, the next day you could stand them up without, yep. you know, they get they get all hard. So uh, the leather thing was kind of getting a little old for us. So we uh, we just tried to lighten it up and put T-shirts and stuff on. Anyway, so we're doing this picture. And our man, uh, one of our managers, we had another manager named Lou Blair, great guy, big guy. Big man, six, eight, six, nine, wide, big, jolly, beard, looked great, had a good time, always, always, and I miss him because he passed away too, sadly. So another rest in peace. Yes, another one. So he's uh, watching this photo shoot, and he comes up to us, and he goes, come on, you guys, you look... you look like you're depressed or something. You look like you're mad at somebody. I don't want, he says, what's with the sexy look? Let's have some fun here. And we kind of went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he turned around and he, something fell. He turned around and he reached down to pick up what he dropped. And the crack of his ass was right there, like four feet from all of us standing there. And we all went. <laughs> and that's the shot. All at the same time. And the guy or the girl went. And said, there it is. Right there. Because, you know, the album title, Love It Every Minute of It. Yeah. And if you look at that, I think we're all laughing pretty Yeah, hard. you guys are having a good time. We're laughing. we're laughing at the crack of his ass. <laughs> uh, you're still, now at this point, you guys are still selling multi-platinum in the U.S. You guys are still, you know, being, a, continuing to be a big deal. Thank you know? God. And, yeah. and then, 86, I guess Paul, I guess Paul Dean decides that soundtracks are okay. <laughs> Because you guys, you guys record Heaven in Your Eyes for the Top Gun soundtrack. I can tell by the look in your eyes, you've been hurting. You know I'll never let you down, oh no. And I'll try anything to keep it working. ultimately the best story i've ever told this next one mm-hmm. all right well let's continue <laughs> i think it even beats the queen of the broken heart story all right uh we get a call the call comes in to our office in vancouver from uh simpson and brookheimer yeah don simpson rest in peace oh my god uh, and, and jerry, jerry brookheimer still with us all the big stuff yes and it was he wanted to talk to one of the guys in the band. So they 
gave the, the they phoned me and I talked to him. He said, we wanted to have a meeting down in in Los Angeles, the Paramount Studios thing. So I fly down there by myself. I don't know why Paul didn't come with me. I'm glad he didn't because you'll hear at the end of the story what he was doing. And I walk into the, I get into, you know, you go into Paramount Studio Gates and your name's at the door and you drive in and got a driver and everything. It's like, this is Paramount Studios. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's a big deal. So, and we go all the way through all the sound stages to where the offices are. And I go upstairs and there's this office, huge office. In the middle of the office is a popcorn maker making fresh popcorn. So the smell is amazing. And then as you, and I stand at the door and you look in, there's two guys walking this one guy's walking this way the other guy's walking this way they cross in the middle and they go well that would be good if we did that and they talk about stuff and they're thinking and walking and crossing on the other side of the boat and i'm standing there watching them going like this my mouth is probably open like you know like what the hell are these guys doing and then they go can we help you and i went yeah i'm mike reno you wanted a meeting with me and they go, oh, oh, oh yeah mike come on in come on, in, come on. <laughs> so take me around the corner to this little place was a TV and they, they pump in this cassette player, uh, a piece from the movie. And in the piece, there's this speedster that goes flying up the hill. And behind it comes a Ninja 900 chasing the speedster. Speedster Parks gets there first, goes in. It's what's your name? And then Tom Cruise parks his bike. They go in and they're having a dispute i think he just quit or something mm -hmm. he was going to quit he was going to he wasn't going to be a top gun anymore right and they're, they're explaining the whole emotional part of this movie and then they pop the guy pops it i think it was uh tom cruise pops a quarter in the jukebox and presses a button he goes can you write a song for that that scene right there <laughs> right when he presses the button <laughs> and, you know, i'm sitting there i got you know i got chills just telling the story and so I went, but that's what, that's their jumping off point, this scene. And now write a, you need to write the song now that goes with the jukebox. But check this out. Okay. I says, you know, being a, a bold, brash, uh, underconfident, but trying to pretend I'm overconfident. I said, absolutely. I could, we can write a song for that. I go, when did you need it? He goes Thursday. And I went, today's Monday. You don't mean this Thursday. They went Thursday. We need it this Thursday. And I just went, Okay, I better get out of here. And then I remember phoning Paul, and I said, Paul, we got to come up with this ballad. And a friend of ours was working in the same studio we were. He had started this ballad. So we took that ballad, and Paul started loverboizing it while I flew home. Okay. And we, I landed, I went to Mushroom Studios, and by that time, Paul had put on all his guitars. We'd added the drums. We'd put on uh, this, that, and the next thing. And then I sang the track and I changed the bridge and we changed some of the lyrics and boom, 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 boom. And it was done. We mastered it and we sent it down there and they went, we love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just thinking, what are the chances they love anything the yeah. first time you send it to them? Like, you know, you could go through 10 different songs before you love it. And it, it turned out it was just, we've always had a bit of luck in this business and you know, in any kind of big business, luck is very important. It, it's kind of like the stars have to align. The timing has to be right. The people in the world have to be working in the same kind of zone. And it's just one of those mystical things that happen a lot to Loverboy. So the track that you sent to them, that was just a demo. Then you guys had to re-record it? Or was that, again, the actual track? 
actual track. And who produced that? You guys self-produced it? Yeah, Paul and I and John Dexter produced it. Wow. And again, then, I mean, then here we go. It goes to number 12. And, and by the way, that I don't know what else was on the charts at the time. This should have been number one. I don't know how this wasn't a number one single. Well, you know how it is, record business. It's all about, yeah. in the old days, realistically, it was all about who paid who and who got where, what, yeah. where it really was. I mean, they could, people could tell you it's different, but I've seen firsthand what people can do with uh, making or breaking a single. Yeah. But you know, that Heaven in Your Eyes is one of Loverboy's best videos, if you ever get a chance to see the video. It's been a while, but I'm sure I've seen it, but I would we have to go back. Live, yeah, we recorded it live at a, at a concert in uh, Nashville at the outdoor area, an outdoor place. And it's just, a, we had like film and, and great. And then behind the scenes, they put in stuff from the movie. Nice. After the fact, because at the time we just, I think, had a scrim up there. Yeah. So they implanted in there behind there somehow. They superimposed Anyways, everything. If you ever get a chance to see the video, that's a hell of a video. Yeah, that's just a great song. And then and then after that, was was Paul cool with soundtrack stuff and ballads? After you got a taste well, of it, funny. you know, you know, I th it is funny how it works. And I know we're, we're sitting here going, how does he think about that now? But it's a learning process. You know, you never really know what to do. And then you do stuff and it works. And you go, geez, I didn't even think that would work, but it worked. So, yeah. And then shortly after that, Paul once again said, I think we're, we're starting to overdo it on the ballads. And I said, well, whatever. You know, I think you got to throw a ballad in here and there make so the guys can dance with the girls, you know? Yeah. Put their arm around, hold hands, kiss, all that good yeah. stuff. Yeah. 87, Bruce Fairbairn returns. We get Notorious, uh, co-written with Bon Jovi and uh, Richie Sambora. Right. I forgot about that. Got uh, D Deep Cut, uh, Hometown Hero, written with Brian Adams, some uh, some other singles, and you go Golden U.S. and Golden Canada. So you're still, you're still, you're still Pretty chugging good. along. You know what? A lot of people say you got seven years in the business. You know, we've been lucky. We're still playing. Yeah. I mean, this is our fortieth year. You still believe it or not? I know you don't. I don't. You don't believe me, do you? Forty years. You've been doing this since, uh, I don't want to give up your age, but since uh, mid-20s with Loverboy. Yeah, mid-20s. You got it. So then, uh, big ones, you do a, there's a couple of new tracks on that, including Too Hot, which I like a lot. And then, you basically, you, you, there's like a 10-year break from recorded music. Right. What's happening during that time? What are, what are you, are you guys still doing shows? Or are you just... I'll tell, no, I'll tell you what happened. We had received, we did a record and handed it to the record company, and they said uh, it wasn't what they were looking for. And this is still Columbia? 
Yeah. Okay. We said, what do you mean it wasn't what you're looking for? Goes, Could you do something else? I said, like something else, like what? Like something else that doesn't sound so much like Loverboy. And I'm, I'm kind of shaking my head going, why would they want something that doesn't sound like Loverboy? I'll tell you why. They were in turmoil. They were looking for something different. Uh, the Seattle sound was just coming out. Yeah. It- and they were taking over. Rock stations stopped playing uh, our music. Everyone just played Nirvana, and that was it. And the bands like that, Soundgarden and stuff, great bands. But I didn't think the record business would completely go that way, which they did. They didn't want records from Cheap Trick, Foreigner, Ariel no. Speedwagon. They didn't want anything from any of those guys. So everybody basically, and this, at the same time, radio stations changed their format and stopped playing it too. So we all just kind of went, well, why don't we just take the kids fishing, for Christ's sake? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is a time in our life when we can actually do something with our families it, that's the way it's going to be yeah because you've we been took a little bit of, yeah we took a little bit of time off the road and off recording it always amazed me that that when grunge came that all the formats and everything changed because if you think about like 82 through 85 and you think about all the artists that lived on the radio together prince cindy lopper bruce springsteen u2 Loverboy, all of these different types of music Tina Turner, all you all you guys, artists, lived on the radio together. Why couldn't grunge just slip in there and live right alongside everyone else? I don't understand why the total shift. I think the only one good thing that came from that was uh, classic rock radio. Oh, that's true. And another good thing happened for country music. Country music basically got bought all our road gear, bought our travel cases, used our roadies, rented our truck drivers, rented the tour buses, got a little more rock and roll. So country acts were turning into rock acts. The country was still going because they had a whole niche of their own. Right. But rock and roll got stopped by the Seattle sound, basically. Mm -hmm. And you know what? That's just the way it went. I could change nothing. So I said, let's just go fishing. What's great about your music and the music I love and all the bands you mentioned, Cheap Trick, Aria Speedwagon, is you guys have a longevity that is... uh, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, sporting events, commercials, all these things, they still go back and take the songs that you guys created. And it's like, it's like universal. Everyone knows these songs. Yeah. So bravo. You know, what has been really cool is when, when like somebody says, you got to watch the Super Bowl because Radio Shack just did a commercial and you're in it. Yeah, you know, it's like I want my level boy back, and you know, weird stuff like cool. that. Yeah, go, are you kidding? Super Bowl, and then the national uh, car rental ad, right? Yep. Where we're with Patrick Warburton, and uh, he's playing his cool, confident guy who likes everything <laughs> his way. And he goes, "Yeah, when I travel, I like to travel with my lover boy guys here, you know." And then, and then I'm loving every minute of yep. it. Then flash pots go off and yep. we drive up a lot going like this, you know. I mean, we've been pretty lucky yeah. there, too. And all those things are fabulous just for, because a lot, it's not just us that were there. There was all the people that were our fans. Yeah. They were there, too. Yep. And they, they love it when stuff like that hits the radio or hits television. Absolutely. And so it's not just the band, it's the fans. It's probably more for the fans than it is for the band. So the fans are moving with us the same way. I mean, it's all it, we're all carrying each other, you know, like one big love fest. So, Mike, this record that you presented to Columbia that they didn't want to release, 
Is there an unreleased Loverboy album out there somewhere that I never heard? Or did these songs get turned into other songs uh, later? A mixture of everything. Okay. Uh, we basically just shelved it mm-hmm. and took, song, took songs here, pieces of songs. And, but Paul's fabulous at that. He's like a carpenter. He takes uh, uh, bits and pieces of songs and puts them together and sands them down and goes, how's that sound? You know, that's great. Makes so, it new. And then I'd go over to his place, I'd re-sing it all and it'd be all great. So we did a lot of that for a while. And then management came to us one day and said, we want you to do a concert for your friend who's having some problems raising money for his cancer medication, which was a big thing on our hearts. You know, we, we absolutely, we said, we hadn't played in, a, in about a year and a half. So we went and met at this place and it was on the expo site where we had Expo 86. And it was in this room that had held about 1,800 people. It was perfect. Nice. It was called Club, uh, what was it called? Club Soda or something? I can't remember the name of it. Anyways, we actually uh, just went there, uh, got our roadies, old roadies to come back and set all our gear up where they found it in a storage place. We kicked open the guitar case. Out came a, a set list from the guitar case. <laughs> okay. So we looked at it and he went, yeah, let's do this. Let's just so do this. <laughs> We set it down to the, uh, by That's the monitors funny. there. That's excellent. And, just, and Brian Adams was playing. I think Bon Jovi was in town. Motley Crue, they all kind of helped out for this musical thing. Uh-huh. And so we walked up and we did like an hour and the crowd just said, keep playing. So we just kept playing off the list. And uh, we looked at each other and went, geez, that was fun, man. That was fun. Because it's fun for us, right? Yeah. And we hadn't seen each other for a while. And on the way back, management was standing there with that look, the old canary. <laughs> uh, somebody just ate, and they had the smirk on their face, and they go, they, they, I remember he just said, I guess you want us to book you some gigs now, huh? And we went, sure. And he goes, well, you're lucky, because casinos are higher now, and they're great venues. And we just went, let's go. So we just jumped right back in. <laughs> right back <laughs> so, in it. That's excellent. Yeah. Uh, then in 97, you do... Uh, there was a record label that came out, CMC International, and they were giving all you veteran artists, Sticks, um, right. uh, uh, Eddie Money, all, all you guys. They were giving you uh, uh, an, an outlet for uh, for some new music. So you guys record Loverboy Six. It's got a, a song I love on there is Big Picture. It's the first song in okay. the album. I think that's I almost, a great that's yeah. a great tune. many songs off that album so I almost forgot about it mm. but um, and you know what's funny is when we did that record we were all into it and everything we, we, we'd come out and we'd, we'd go back on the tour and we'd start playing some of these songs off that album 
and people are just kind of scratching their head going, I've never heard that. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost like you got to give them exactly what they want. You got to spoon feed them and it's a shame. Or they lose interest. And even if you say, I got a new one here, they kind of go, okay, I'm going to go take a leak and grab a beer. You know what I mean? It's just like one of those moments where it, you think it's going to be great right. and it turns out not so great. And then after about six shows, you start dropping them out of the set and going back to the format. Back to the stuff, yeah. Another minute of it working for the weekend, you know, and uh, turn me loose and such. In a minute, I'm going to kiss your ass big time, Mike, when we talk about just getting started. But before that, I have a question for you. Is there a, is there a Mike Reno solo album called Renovation? Does that exist? Well, let's just go have a look here. <laughs> this happens to be one right here. Okay, well, how do you, how do I get like I've never I've only seen a picture of it. I've never heard it. Where where is this available? I'll send it to you. Well, that's very nice. You give me your address. I'll send it to you. I will. I will. I will. I'll I will send have you this one right here. I will have time. But what? Why was that ever released? What What happened with this? Uh, I went down to Los Angeles personally with my own money and organized a writing session with uh, a couple of people and then got together with the, in a studio with a with an engineer. Okay. And work, was working with Mark Spiro, who's a writer. Yep. Know the name. Thanks for Cheap Trick and John Lennon's son and all kinds of things. He's done all kinds of things. So we were together hanging out. I was staying at the hotel. It was kind of fun. It was a nice period of my life. I'm recording in this record plant. We're mixing the record plant. That's fantastic. On the other side is uh, Billy Idol's, you know, recording. And I went, Jesus, that's cool. You know, it was a very cool time. Yeah. And it was just something I was doing for me. And then as soon as I talked to the record company about putting it out, I figured, you know, they'd pay me back, right? They'd love the record. They'd pay sure. me back. I, I sent it to them. They went, we actually want another Loverboy record. Can you go arrange that? It's the same old deal, right? Yeah. You spend like 80 grand recording a record and you give it to them and they go, well, that's nice, but can you give us something completely different? So I don't know. I just got so pissed off. I just said, whatever. And then I never released it. But okay. it really has some good songs on it. I've uh, I've given it to some friends and they go, how come you didn't release it? It's professional. Do you know, you know who was talking about it the other day? No. Who? Was uh, Lee Scalar, the bass, the bass player who plays? Oh yeah, um, yeah, yes. I, I I just met Lee uh, the end of last year. What a nice dude! So nice. Good, Is he yeah. on that album? He's playing all the bass. Yeah, fantastic. And we had a fun time recording because he, he, he's the best. Uh, yeah, you know, you know Michael Mike Thompson, the guitar player who played with uh, uh, every giant, and uh, he played him with Michael Jackson and uh, the Huff Brothers. Yep, and who's uh, who's on drums now? Drums. And now uh, Huff is uh, one of the biggest producers in Nashville. You know, yep. what I mean, these are quality people on this record, and um, which I will send you, by the way. Are you and, gonna uh, charge? Are you gonna charge me eighty grand for that? No, <laughs> I'm just gonna send it to you for nothing. Thank you, because I love you. That's great. <laughs> um, well, I can't wait to hear it. I've never heard a thing about it. I've only heard of it. It's like the holy grail of uh, of albums. I'm just like, I didn't even know if it was really true. And and I, I would have no way of knowing that that was sitting behind you because I can't really focus on anything that's behind you. But that is amazing that I ask and you turned around and you have it in your hand. That's kind of cool. I was just looking at it the other day. kind of cool. Yeah. You know what? Because Lee Scalar was talking about it on his web podcast... I think he does it every week. Mm -hmm. 
he decided to do a whole thing. He said, I played on this song with Mike Reno. He told a nice story. And then he played the song on his podcast. And while he's while it's playing it, he's doing all the bass moves with air guitar. Like he's and then he goes, and then he goes, and here comes the vocals. And he goes like this. He goes, yeah, do you know anybody who sings like this? This is insane. And he couldn't believe it was never released because he just said, I've done a lot of projects in my life, and this is one of my favorites. And I thought, what a great thing for him to do. And everybody called me and said, did you see that Lee Scholar thing? So I watched it. I was really blown away. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch and it since now. And some of my friends have said, do you have that album? Right? And they said, it's $100 on the Internet. And I said, oh, I'll send you one. I got a box in the garage. <laughs> well, I'm not selling. I'm not selling mine. So, okay. Okay, Mike. 2007, Loverboy releases just getting started. Uh, you co-wrote nine of these ten songs. This is the first appearance of Ken on a Loverboy album, correct? Yeah. Every single song on this is a winner. This is a ten out of ten. I have yeah. never been so excited about hearing a new record from a band that I love. I'm going to call it a comeback record because it had been years and years. I. I talk about this record all the time. I still listen to You're this. You're not talking about this record right here. <laughs> yes. I just happen to have this one sitting here. And I kid you not, this is, this is the one you're talking about. Yeah. That's the one you're ta I'm talking about. That is, this album, it's my favorite Loverboy album. It's, and you know what? it's I really so good. But here's another thing. This album didn't sell anything. I know. And I, I, I've, I've talked to so many people about this album People, friends of mine that have this album, we're all in agreement. We can't believe how stellar you guys really did it. I mean, you it it's unbelievable. It sounds it's a great sounding record too, it, isn't it? It's it, ten songs, thirty seven minutes. It's a perfect album, start to finish. I mean, stop the, it! Oh, stop! The, it. I'm, the title here, track, here. fade here, fade to black. The, this lyric. Tear down the set. No need. The show is over now I feel like I'm dead Cause I'm living a tragic ending It's all on me for sure Cause every damn mistake that I ever made Is lying on the cutting room floor Too late for sorry End of story She's not coming back
It's great. The real thing, the one that got away, as good as it gets, stranded. I wish I wish these songs were in the set list. I understand why they aren't or why they can't be. But man, you should throw a couple of these in. These songs are stellar. They're just as good as what you guys did in the heyday. I mean, there I've I've got this album and given it to people, and they'll be like, "There's a new Loverboy album." I'm like, "Well, it, there was in 2007." And and you know, you know how people are. They're like, and I'm just like, "Listen to it, please listen to it." Everyone I've ever given it to, when I talk to them next time, they're like, "You were right about that album. That's an amazing album." So. Congratulations. You know I get a lot of that, but from this particular album, it's not like a massive, like people don't talk about. When we go to Europe and stuff, mm -hmm. people go, we've bought this record and they really love it. And it's, it's funny, it didn't. It wasn't like a big selling record, but yeah. I, I, I really love doing Artistically, it. Artistically, you nailed it. I love listening to it. It's just, it gives me chills. And thank you. Thank you. For the yeah, I love it. Rock and Roll Revival in, uh, in 2012, couple of new tracks on there heartbreaker i love that song it's just the classic lover boy feel to it well she's crazy like a fox she's hungry like a wolf her daddy didn't need her so she reads a good book she's like a tangerine you pick from a tree in the garden of eden you can look but don't eat but she's ready and willing and it's killing me ready and willing and it's killing me What I wanted to ask, I always want to uh, ask. We, we recorded that with Bob Rock, by the way. Uh, I think I did know that he, he came. He yeah. came back and produced. Well, um, he says, "Let's go in the studio and cut a couple tracks, and we'll put it on that new record here." So we said, "Thanks, thanks, That's great." And we went into the warehouse, which is where ACDC had been recording all their records in the last few years. This and uh, Rock and Roll Revival was one of these records where you re-recorded -re your back catalog of your biggest hits. I always want to ask artists why you do this. Is this for, um, is this, is this monetary? Like, can you sell these versions for commercials and to movies and things like that? What's the, uh, what's the reason on recording the, the old songs? Bingo. I got you know, it right. Okay. Well, if you do the recording from the record, you know, when you've recorded it, it goes through a process where it goes to New York and they keep 50% of the money. Mm-hmm. If you do a re-record, we call them. Yeah, it's just spent. They send you the check, and it stays with the band. It okay. doesn't go to New York where you lose half the money. Good. So it's one of those things. Okay, cool. And I well, think I'm, I'm glad. Did it. We do. It. A lot of people are doing. Yeah, it. Kiss has done it. Thing, Everyone did. Journey's yeah, done it. it. You know what? I remember doing a re-record, and it's hard to to do it exactly like you did it. You know, 30 years ago. It's yeah. not an easy thing because your voice is a little different. You know, my voice has always remained pretty good. Yeah. And a lot of people even think my voice is sounding better, which I think is kind of nice. Nice compliment anyway. Sure. But to sing like you're 24 years old, it's got that 
it's missing. You know, it's missing a little bit of that youthful vibe that you just can't. So you really have to work at it, anyways. thought it would be easier than it was let me put it that way yeah especially like yeah when you're trying to like you said you're trying to copy what you did these classic songs and do them as close as possible i would imagine that would be difficult yeah it is it is difficult 2014 unfinished business i think this is a compilation of unreleased tracks did you guys do any new recording to these and spruce well, you know them up you're talking earlier about that what what we do with some of the tracks they turned up here yeah we had a vault of you know, full of tracks, and we ended up getting all our 24 tracks stuff from all these years, 48 track stuff from all these years, and we ended up, they were in storage, but we found out the tapes don't really last that long. They kind of disintegrate and fall apart. Okay. So you have to do a process of baking the reels in like a toaster oven, a big one, for like, at a certain temperature for like 100 minutes, and then play them once. And when you play them, you download them onto digital and then they're garbage. It's funny. When I talked to John Anderson last week, he said the exact same thing. You bake them, but you can only play them one time. Yeah. And then that's, then they're gone. They're, they're very brittle. Okay. But if you don't bake them, you can't even play them once. What the baking process does, I'm not really sure. Yeah. It's it's, it's it's probably some chemical thing, but, uh, or just dries it out or something. It allows you to play it once. So if you want to save your old stuff, that's what you have to do. And it's time consuming and it's expensive, but it's worth it. Now we have all that stuff. And when we had it all, and Paul had some time on his hands, he started going through it all and saying, Whoa, I remember this track. We forgot about this track. Yeah. And that track was almost finished. And this track is finished. This was a, a demo. So we can't do anything because it's off a cassette, but you can, roll it onto digital and then master it again. Mm-hmm. So with the frequencies, you could master it so it sounds a little better. But that's kind of, you know, what we did. And just for fun, right? You yeah. know, because music. And there were some, there's some great tracks on here. One of my faves is Fire Me Up. I can't believe that never made it 
to a previous Loverboy album. Was that? Fire me up. Yeah, I remember doing that. It was fun. Like that's yeah, one yeah. of the that's one of those songs. Like if you slip that into the set list, people would just think that they had heard it before. <laughs> even <laughs> even if they hadn't, they'd go, "Yeah, I know this one." You got a point there. Yeah, it's one. Of the, it's very Loverboy esque. Very Loverboy esque. The guitar and the drums, and then the keyboards come in, and the big vocal thing. Yeah, it's very Loverboy esque. All right, so. Now I'm going to bring us right up to the present, Mike. What what's Loverboy up to now? What's Mike Reno up to now? I know that we can't tour right now. Uh, I know that there's a lot of things we can't do right now. But are you staying creatively busy in your home? Well, I got a track on the computer I'm talking to you with right now that I'm working on, but I don't think I could play it. It'll probably blow your mind. I'm not, you know, because it's fantastic, but because we're probably go through the rock set of speakers and it would just be too much. <laughs> Anyways, so that's kind of, so I've got two of those tracks I'm working on at home here. And, um, what are those called? Give us some titles. I haven't even finished the title on that one. All right. Uh, I think it's going to be called with a girl like you. All right. Cause that's what I've been singing. Okay. Before. With a girl like you. That's going to be nice. cool. So, but we did finish one recently, Paul and I in the band. Okay. And we initially, we originally wrote this about, uh, we noticed the struggles. Well, our Paul, our guitar player, his son, uh, from the age of three became a juvenile diabetes uh, kid. Okay. And, you know, you to, you know, you have to wake a kid up at night and give him a needle and all the things that have gone through up until like he's in his 20s now and he's you know but it's a lot of a lot of stuff involved with sure. diabetes gi- juvenile diabetes it really is it's just and so paul and i came up with this track uh and uh we basically wrote it for that but it seems when we play it now it seems to be about this COVID 19 thing as well mm-hmm. you know what i mean a lot of tracks you know a lot of singers and writers will write about something and people will take it completely different yeah and that's kind of the, the essence maybe of a good song i don't know but you know if everyone can take from it what they need yeah you can interpret it whatever way it, it feels for you and it's called give me back my life and uh, good title. i'd love it if you played it i'll tell you what i'll use that as the playout song if you can if can you email me a, a, a copy of that? It's on the way. All right. Well, Mike. And this one will be in the mail. Okay. We'll, we'll have to figure out where to send it. You don't have to. I'll email. That. I'll email. Uh, well, let me thank uh, Tom Berger for setting this up, and I'll email him my mailing address, and he'll get it to you. And, and um, then I'll, I'll just pop it in an envelope and pop it in the mail. That would be terrific, Mike. Thank you so much for giving me this time i've uh, i've been wanting to talk to you for a long long time this was uh, this was everything i hoped it would be perfect guest stories and you're uh, present and excited and funny and thank you so much i really do appreciate it well pat it was great talking to you you're fantastic on the other end i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> i'm one take pat you're one take pat you can use that <laughs> all right take care mike we'll see you soon thanks man okay Peace out. Bye-bye. See ya.
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.